Here's one of the assured findings that they have. Women are interested in people and relationships. And what is psychology? It's people and relationships. Men, not so much. Men are interested in things and systems. There are men and even some world-class men who are psychologists, and they will tell you that when they test, they test out with more feminine characteristics than a particularly masculine man. Nothing wrong with that. Also, many of the psychologists who are giving us the data we're about to look at are women who lean toward feminism, who would like to find differently than what the statistics grant. But alas, the numbers don't lie. Also, I want to remind you, we're talking about averages, you know, standard distribution, the bell curve and all that. So it won't work if you say, well, I know my sister, she isn't like that. I know your sampling is too small. These people have huge samplings across cultures, down through time, and uh, they're telling us here are the results. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor here at Cornerstone Community Church in Joplin, Maryland. And our topic for today is, well, it's really part two on masculinity and femininity. The basic principle here is that, well, men and women are different. I hope you know that, but if you don't, I'm going to help you with that. Different. Neither one is better or worse, just different. Better in different ways, worse in different ways. So, we want to understand what ways and what ways are they different. So why are we doing this? Let me just kind of clue you in here. One, it will help you, knowing this stuff will help you to understand the other half of the human race. Like if you're a guy, it'll help you understand women. You'll get it. Oh, I see. I get it. If you're a girl, it'll help you understand men. So it's helpful for that. Another reason we're doing this is if you're married, it will help you understand, well, your wife or your husband. Uh, that's a good thing. Peter says dwell with your Wife, according to understanding, that's one of the biblical commands you're given. This will help you understand your woman. This will help you understand your man if you're a woman. Uh, a third thing this will do for you is it will, contrib- it will contribute to your understanding of the God-assigned gender roles that we find in Scripture. I hope to help you understand that they are not just arbitrarily designed, like God didn't flip a coin and say, all right, who's going to be head? It's tail, so it's the man. No, but, but there, are, there are ways God made us that uniquely map to the roles that he gave us. This will contribute to that. Fourth, this will defend men. Like, do men need defending? Well, they sort of do. They'll defend men and masculinity, both of whom are in our strange day and in our culture under attack. So, again, here's what I'm asserting. I'm asserting that men and women are different. Neither is better. Neither is worse. We both have our betters and we both have our worse. But we're better and worse at different things. All right, so let's start out with an example. Last week, it was a girl with a doll and a boy with a G.I. Joe. This week, it's two couples out for dinner. So they're having dinner, and they're having a good time. And one of the ladies says, "Uh, I'm going to go to the ladies' room. And what happens next? You know what happens next. The other lady says, I'll go with you. And they go together to the ladies' room. Now, men don't do that. Women do that. Why do women do that? Because it's a social event. Because they can talk in there. They can do girl talk in there that they couldn't do at the table. And it's exciting to have that little window of opportunity for some girl talk. They can communicate about what do you think about what my guy's wearing? What do you think about what your guy's wearing? And all kinds of different things. So women love to do that. 
They'll even spend a little time maybe gossiping in there. It is a fact women do gossip more than men. There are things men do that ain't so great. So not just slamming women here, but so do guys go to together? Like if the guy says, I'm going to the bathroom, does the other guy say, I'll go with you? Never. Like you would think that was pretty weird if guys do that. For men, the bathroom is just, well, a bathroom. It's somewhere you go when you have to go. And men are very quiet. This has been tested. Men are very quiet in the bathroom. Like, you'd think it's weird if you went in there and men were just standing there talking. Men don't do that. It's not a relational event for men because men aren't relational in the same way to the same degree that women are. What am I saying? Men and women are different. Let me give you another opening example, another opening story, an interesting fact that indicates that men and women are different. Divorce. What do you think? Are divorces mainly initiated by men or women or the same? Because if we're the same, then you would expect, well, half of divorces are initiated by men, half divorces are initiated by women. So what's your guess? Well, the fact of the matter is, in the general population, 70% of all divorces are initiated by women. Leaving the general population, if you go to college-educated women, 90% of divorces where there's a college-educated woman in the marriage, 90% of those marriages that bust up, it's the woman who said, I'm done. I'm out of here. So isn't that interesting? Same marriage, same home, same stuff going on, same lifestyle, same possessions. And the woman says, I can't stand this. I've had it. I'm out. And the man wasn't that. He was like, I don't want to be out. I don't want this to end. And he's maybe shattered. 90% of college-educated divorces are initiated by women. It's even worse if a woman just gets a big promotion, especially if she lands a top job. That is a time in a professional woman's life when she is most likely to divorce her husband. So interesting. Now, why if men and women are the same? It should be like 50-50, but it's 90-10. Why? The answer is because men and women are different. Obviously, men and women are psychologically different, different in what they want, different in what they like and don't like. Okay, so now we're going to look at how men and women differ. And we're going to look first at the Bible a little bit, the fact that they differ and some hints on how they differ. Then we're going to look at some of the best of modern psychology, which is in its heyday and has a ton of studies and statistics and data to back up the things we're going to be looking at. First, the Bible. We could go to many passages to see that men and women are different, but let's just start in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Look them up if you want to, and then look at Adam and Eve and how they're described, and you know what? They sure look different. We know that, don't we? We know that from all of human history. He's bigger. She's not as big. His muscles make his arms and body more hard and firm. She's softer. She, in her upper body, has the means of feeding a baby. He does not. So you look at this, different size, different apparatus, different accoutrements, if you will, and you say, hmm, I wonder if they were made for different purposes. In fact, you don't even wonder. You say they're obviously made for different purposes. Like if you park a truck next to a Prius, you would look at them and say, hmm, these are made for different purposes. The truck is made to haul heavy stuff. The Prius is made for, I'm not sure what. Anyway, I guess for cleaning up the environment. That's the idea anyway. But you get the point. You look at them and say, oh, they're obviously made for different roles. And because they're made for different roles, if you look deeper into the truck's making, and if you look deeper into the Prius's making, you'll see they're actually made in different ways. 
The ways they're made are according to their function. So look at Adam, look at Eve, and one thing for sure, he is made to protect her. She is not made to protect him. He's got a way bigger body, way more muscles, way bigger bones. His long arms make amazing clubs with big hands on the end of them. He can hit way harder than she can if somebody needs to be hit, for, for example. And it goes on and on and on and on. They're very different in body. And you have to wonder, does it go any deeper? Could it be that he's made to be more aggressive? It is so. Does, could it be that she's made to be more nurturing, soft, able to nurse? Yes, she is made for that. So that's Genesis 1 and 2. Let's hop over into Genesis chapter 3. It's interesting to see that after the fall of our first parents, the consequences that God meted out to them are gender differentiated. Like to the woman, he says, these things will happen to you. To the man, it's a different set. These things will happen to you. Let me read them for you. Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Obviously, he doesn't say that to the man. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So all of her consequences are relationship-oriented. They have to do with your children and your husband and your relationship with them. What about the man? Here's what God says to the man, Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, they both get pain, but Adam's pain is with the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. What's he saying? Work is going to become work. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. His consequences are about things. I want you to notice her consequences are about people and relationships. His consequences are about things and the systems of working with those things and how they respond. And one of the best known, psychologically verified, proven, if you will, differences between men and women is that exact thing. Women are interested in people and relationships, and men are interested in things and systems by which those things work. But God, in Genesis 3, meted out different consequences for the fall. Now, why, if men and women are the same? If we're identical, if there's no difference between Adam and Eve, why didn't they get the same consequences? No, the fall will touch the things that are most meaningful to her, the things to which she is powerfully fueled, and the fall will touch him and his things. Let's jump into the New Testament, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. This one's a zinger. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. There's kind of a leveling right there, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let's notice a few of Peter's words. Dwell with your wives according to understanding. According to understanding... Well, if we're just the same, like so many people are telling us, then why would he need to dwell with her according to understand? What's to understand? She's the same thing as me. We're the same, but we're not. And that will require the man to work on understanding. When understanding femininity, that's some, some of what we're doing right here, helping you understand masculinity and femininity and how they differ so you'll appreciate the differences. So you rejoice in the differences. You won't battle your wife because she's different. You won't battle your husband because he's different. You understand, oh, she's different. That means more to her than it does to me. It will really help you to dwell with her according to understanding. 
and not just understanding femininity at large, but understanding her unique brand of femininity. Not all women are exactly the same in their femininity. Your wife has a unique brand of it. And understanding the, her, her brand of femininity, well, it's glorious, her brand of femininity. But it's also challenging for you to understand. So Peter says, understand your wives. Well, why is that in there if we're just the same? He doesn't say understand guys. We kind of do understand guys. Next, then he calls her the weaker vessel. Now, the word vessel is a first century Greek word for a clay pot. And it's he doesn't call her weak. He calls her weaker. So notice, we're both weak. She's weaker. We both have cracks and holes in our clay pots. She might have a greater weakness in her clay pot. So what does that mean, weaker? What's he referring to? Well, certainly he's saying that the woman is physically weaker. And there is actually, and you might not realize this, there's quite a massive difference in physical strength between men and women. Now, this could be illustrated in a whole lot of ways, but maybe this is a good timely one. What are we seeing in the news right now? If you allow a man who is ranked, let's say, 405th in men's swimmers to swim against the very best women on the planet— Guess who wins? Quite handily, the man does. That's how much stronger men are. Even once they've been taking hormones and so on to demanize a little bit, they're still better than the best swimmers in the world easily. This plays out in many other sports. Let's think about soccer. This is interesting. I'm not kidding. A Dallas under 15, so they're mainly 14 years old, boys soccer team played the USA women's national soccer team. Guess what happened? The 15-year-old boys won 5-2. That's been repeated in other examples. It's been done in Australia. The Australian women's national soccer team lost to an under 15. That means a group of 14-year-old boys, 0-7. to What about running? The top couple of female runners in the world can be beaten by 15,000 men and by thousands and thousands of boys. Men are just stronger. Doesn't mean men are any better. We're just different. Uh, We need the men's strength, however. We don't want to be saying men are useless. Men are the problem on the planet. Let's get rid of men. No, women need men's strength, and men need each other's strength. How about in tennis? This is interesting. You're familiar with the Williams sisters? Serena Williams and her sister were destroyed by a guy who was 203rd in men's tennis and near retirement. He beat them both the same day, playing them back-to-back, and he smoked cigarettes during the change of side, and he's a heavy smoker, which is maybe why he's only rated 203rd among men. And he played with a handicap. You know how in tennis you get two serves. The first one's your zinger. If it misses, then you get more conservative, so you can carefully place your second one. He was only allowed one serve, so he had to carefully place it. He couldn't even send his zingers across there. He beat them 6-1 and 6-2. So Peter writes and informs us that the woman is a weaker vessel. There are very large physical differences. But when Peter writes weaker vessel, is he really taking prime time in God's word just to tell us, hey, guess, guess what? You know what? I bet you didn't know this. Women are not quite as strong as men. I have a hunch he's referring to more than that. I have a hunch that Peter is indicating that there are other ways in which the woman is not as strong. Going rather rapidly over this point, here's a quote, a finding from a study of men and women, a quote from the world of modern psychology, quote, men have a stronger ability than women to quiet their emotions 
when a difficult, challenging task at hand must be accomplished. Hmm, true or false? Well, great psychologists are telling us that's true. So I'm saying maybe Peter's weaker includes more than just a weaker body. Maybe it includes a, a, a greater fragility emotionally. Think about that. But there's more. Peter also says that the women are to be gentle and quiet in spirit. And that's, that gentleness and quietness is very precious in the sight of God. Hmm, interesting. Men are not told in Scripture to be gentle and quiet in their spirit. Now, we're all to be gentle in a sense. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. But women are specifically told to be gentle and quiet in spirit. Not in American culture, by the way. In American culture, in school, boys are to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. In corporate America, men receive sensitivity training. It's women who are sensitive. They are. Women are better than men, way better than men at sensitivity. So the question is how to be more like a woman so that women can compete with the men's aggression. But Peter says women are to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Hmm, why? Maybe because the woman's made for a different role. Maybe because she's made in a different way. Maybe. It gets more interesting. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Be watchful. This is to men and women, by the way. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Now, here it comes. Act like men. It's a Greek word that means basically if you take the word man and put eyes on the end, man eyes, that's what he does with his Greek. Man eyes, be strong. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Man eyes, be strong. Or act like men. Some of our modern translations have watered it down to be courageous. But it's more than that. It actually mentions masculine, act like a masculine, act like a man. This assumes that there are unique ways of acting, ways that are unique to men. This assumes we can identify, hey, men act like this and women act like that. And it was the same in Peter's day as it is in our day. It's not just due to socialization, and the psychologists will tell us that. We see the same thing in Job 40, verse 7. It's kind of interesting. He says, in this case, I think it is to, uh, to men, or maybe it's to all Israel, dress for action like a man. I like the old translation, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. It's God to Job. What am I saying? So what, what do those two passages tell us? 1 Corinthians 16, Job chapter 40. There are ways you can act that are the ways a man acts, and there are ways you can act that are the ways a woman acts. We need them both. They're both wonderful. Neither one is better than the other. Praise God for women acting the way women act. Praise God for men acting the way men act. But that's the point. They're different, and the difference is beautiful, and we need them both. It's not that anybody's better than anybody else. We're just different. That's the point I'm making. Getting closer to home, now we're going to circle back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and notice what it says about differences between men and women. Here it is, 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. Paul writes, and this is God's word, I do not permit a woman to teach. He's talking about in the corporate gatherings for worship among God's people. I do not permit a woman to teach. She's not to be the teacher in the assembly. Or to exercise authority over a man, meaning she's not to hold the office of elder, pastor, or overseer. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The quiet is not an unqualified quiet. She's allowed to say to her kid, sit still. She's allowed to sing the song. She's allowed to say amen. She's just not to be the teacher, the preacher. 
in that situation, and she's not to be the elder in that church. Now, why? And here Paul gives us two reasons why, and I want you to listen to his first one. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So we'll come back to that one, but it's very interesting. We need to think about that. And secondly, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. So Paul's giving us reasons why he does not permit a woman to teach or to have the authority in a church. And notice, they're not capricious. He doesn't say, because God flipped a coin and said, ah, tails, sorry, women, you don't get to speak in church. Heads, men, you, you won. No, it's not capricious. God didn't flip a coin. Paul tells us here's why. Let's look at the first reason why again. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, that obviously means something. Paul's citing it as a reason. So what's he expect it to mean? What are we supposed to get out of that? You need to notice, by the way, that there actually is quite a time gap between the time when God made Adam, and he made Adam out of the ground. There's a time gap between that and when he made Eve, and he made Eve out of Adam's side, not out of the ground. They're made in different ways. She's made from him. What does that mean? Why did God do it that way? Why didn't he just create them both at once? Why did he go through all that? There's also, as I mentioned, quite a time gap. Uh, God made the man, then he planted a garden, then he makes trees springing up in the garden, then he puts the man in the garden to tend it, then he parades all the animals before Adam, and he names them. Eve wasn't even given the opportunity to name herself. Adam names the woman, and there's quite a gap before she comes along. What's the point? Adam, here's the point Paul is making. Adam was made first to be the leader. He was made first to be the head of the home. He's actually made first even to be the head of the race. Adam's priority in creation indicates his priority in the family, and so in the church. The church is an extension of the family. You have family worship, and when you have more than one family worshiping, well, soon you have a church. So, this is a cause for wonder, and we do wonder, hmm, God made them so differently made her later, made her out of his side, made them so differently physically. I have to wonder, are there any characteristics that uniquely fit them for different roles? Physically, obviously, but what about internal characteristics? Well, now it gets really interesting. After the fall, God interrogates Eve, and Eve explains her sin. She explains herself. She explains why she took the fruit. She explains what happens. Genesis, or what happened, pardon me, Genesis 3.18, she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Paul, in 1 Timothy 2, picks up on her words and comments, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. He actually uses a a compound and intensified verb there or form of the word, the woman was hyper-deceived. Like the wool was totally pulled over her, her eyes. She had no clue what the serpent was up to and what she was getting into. And this, Paul says, is why I don't permit the woman to teach. Now, what's the point? What does Paul mean by that? He means something. He's rooting these gender-differentiated commands in this. So what's it all about? Think about it. There were only two people on the planet. Both of them were pretty newly minted, Eve a little sooner, little newer than Adam. They were both pretty hot off the press. Both had walked with God in the cool of the garden and known his fellowship. 
Both knew about his commands. Both heard the serpent say the same words she gave to her husband with her. He was there when it was happening. So they're both on the same planet, in the same garden, with the same God, hearing the same words. Now think about this. And one was deceived, and the other wasn't. How do you account for that if they were made the same? They've had the same socialization. They've had the same circumstances. What made them to differ? She was super deceived, and Adam was not. Why is that? Let me give you a little little illustration that might help us here. So we have two tractors, and you take a big hose. Let's make it a, a fireman's hose, one of those big hoses, and you spray both of the tractors down real good with salt water. One of them rusts, and the other one doesn't. How would you explain that? Well, one of them was obviously made differently. So you put two people in the garden in the exact same circumstances, and you, give, you put them under a temptation. One of them succumbs to it. The other one gives in to her, follows her. Why did they not both rust? Why did one rust and the other one understood what was going on? And Paul writes, the woman was deceived and Adam was not. Why? They were the same. No, they were made differently. It's inescapable. If they were identical, they would have had identical responses, but they were different. Here's what I am positing. Let me make it clear. Adam and Eve had very different responses to the serpent, and those responses map to their differing natures. Now, what is a nature? A nature is a complex of attributes. We all have various attributes. We all have natures. And I am saying there is a masculine nature and there is a feminine nature. And here's what might have happened. Notice my weasel word, might. Eve, the woman, with her deeply relational nature, she was made that way by God. Eve, with that deeply relational nature, was struggling to keep her finger on what God had said while engaging in an exciting relationship and conversation with a gorgeous animal. Perhaps it was a thrilling, exhilarating conversation. Eve was more susceptible to the serpent's guiles. Obviously, she was. By the way, let me just insert here that in a very fine book that I've been reading through recently, uh, the author writes, very scholarly book, women are more susceptible to woke discourse. Is there a minority? And are they suffering? Tell a white woman of your pain. Blame the white woman for your pain, and she will start confessing the sin of her whiteness and her privilege. That appeals way more to women than it does to men. Advertisers know hey, we can get women about things that we can't get men. But Adam, with cold, steely, non-relational logic, felt no tug of a relationship to the animal, and he knew the snake and his words were evil. He sinned willingly. It was not deceived. What am I saying? Given a woman's highly relational nature, and it's beautiful. Bless God for it. We need it. We want it. The planet would be horrible without that. But given her highly relational nature, it can be much more difficult for her to see a spiritual snake for what it is or a spiritual wolf for what it is. 
a wolf coming into the church of Jesus Christ. She may be tugged, she will be tugged on average, way harder than a man by the relationship, by what she's feeling for that person, by empathy for that person. It's way harder for her to say, no, that's a wolf, and we have to deal with it. Harder for a woman to call someone out. The woman is more relational and is therefore more, this is a term psychology, psychologists use, she is more suggestible. Let me give you an example of how this might play out in real life. This sure does play out this way in real life, and I've been involved in talking with people with whom it's playing out this way. So you have a married couple, a husband and a wife, and they have a family member, his side, her side, doesn't matter. Let's make it her side. That's better. They have a family member on her side getting married in a same-sex marriage. So that would be the wife's brother or the wife's sisters getting married in a same-sex marriage. The wife is way more likely to powerfully feel and maybe succumb to the tug, the pull of the relationship. The man is way more likely with steely, cold logic to say, Basically, I don't care about the relationship. That's not a marriage. We cannot enter into their joy. And he says, we're not going. Or he might say, look, I'll let you go if you want, but I'm not going, and I wish you wouldn't. But here's another way to look at the serpent and Eve thing. The serpent had to get at Adam. He needed Adam. For the race to fall, he needed Adam. Why didn't he go directly to Adam? Why did he choose Eve? Why? Well, you know why. Because Eve was a softer target. Eve being made to nurture, Eve being made highly relational, deeply sympathetic, empathetic, presented to the serpent a softer target. The serpent chose Eve through whom he planned to get at Adam. It worked. All right, just think about it all. Enough on Eve. What have we been seeing? Well, we've been seeing in the Bible that there are differences between men and women, differences that go deeper than physical differences. Let me say again, we're not saying men or women are better. We're better at some things. We're worse at some things. We have equal dignity and worth. We're made alike in the same way, in the image and likeness of God, but we're different. All right, we've been seeing that in the Bible. Now we're going to go to what I'll call the light of nature. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 14 says, does not even nature teach you? So here we're going to say, does not even nature teach us? And there are people who study nature. How are men and women made? What are their proclivities? What are their interests? What are their differences? We call those people psychiatrists or psychologists. And we also have neuroscience telling us what's different inside in men and women these days. And we live in the heydays so far, compared to all the past, we're in the heydays. We have tons of research, tons of data, tons of peer-reviewed articles published in reputable journals. By the way, as we look at psychology, it's interesting to note that over 70% of psychologists are, you want to guess? Is it men or women? Over 70% are women. Because here's one of the assured findings that they have, Women are interested in people and relationships. And what is psychology? It's people and relationships. Men, not so much. Men are interested in things and systems. There are men and even some world-class men who are psychologists, and they will tell you that when they test, they test out with more feminine characteristics than a particularly masculine man. Nothing wrong with that. Also, many of the psychologists who are giving us the data we're about to look at are women 
who lean toward feminism, who would like to find differently than what the statistics grant, but alas, the numbers don't lie. Also, I want to remind you, we're talking about averages, you know, standard distribution, the bell curve, and all that. So it won't work if you say, well, I know my sister, she isn't like that. I know, your sampling is too small. These people have huge samplings across cultures, down through time, and uh, they're telling us here are the results. So let's get into some psychology. So we'll start here. This is interesting. If you use the very best psychometric personality tests, the one best I know of, I think the best that psychologists in America know of, they call it the big five. If you test out on the big five, it's going to test you on a spectrum of five different things. Each of those five things breaks into 10 facets. So you're really being tested. If you drill down a little deeper, you're being tested on 10 things, 10 facets. Now here's the deal. If a woman takes a test and a man takes a test, and they submit them to you, but you didn't get to see which one of these came from the woman and which one of these came from the man. 92% of the time, if you're a good psychologist, you would be able to figure out, oh, that one's the man and that one's the woman because men and women test differently. So 92% of the time, what does that say to us? Men and women are very different psychologically. You see, it's not just Adam's bigger, it's Adam's different. It's not just that he's different on the outside, he's different on the inside. We're not the same. We will find we have different interests, different perspectives, different goals, different loves, different motivations, different fears, different likes and dislikes, so much so that with 92% accuracy, they can look at our scores and say, man, woman. It's interesting. And incidentally, and I know I'm holding you off before we get to our first, all right, what does psychology say? How are men and women different? Bear with me. The differences are caused predominantly by testosterone, but I bet you knew that. In the womb, the boys get a big surge of testosterone that the girls don't get. They get a little. The boys get a big surge. They're marinated in it. Their brain is marinated in it. After birth, the boys get a huge surge, 20 times greater than a girl. At puberty, again, huge surges, 20 times greater than a girl. And from then on, testosterone will biologically masculinize a male's thoughts, behaviors, speech patterns, voice, etc., etc. As adults, what are normal adult level levels of testosterone? Well, if you take a very physically active, high testosterone, young, let's make her 23 years old female, her level, this is on the high end of feminine testosterone, her level is 60. They do a blood test, her level is 60. If you take her male counterpart, 23 years old, a male, on the higher end of testosterone, his number is 1,200. Now, you might not understand, those are huge differences, and they make two very different people. More on testosterone. Even among males, there's a large range of differences in testosterone, and a man with high testosterone is a very different man than a man with low testosterone. Different in physical size, different in muscularity, but not just that. Different in interests, in ways of thinking, in ways of seeing things, different psychologically. So, how do men and women differ psychologically? Thank you for being patient. And the data is in, and it's pretty conclusive. There are multitudes of well-done studies across cultures, down through time. Here's one of the most proven things in psychology today. Men are more assertive, and women are more nurturing. Men are more assertive, 
and women are more nurturing. This is among the most tested, most assured, most constantly found, most noted differences across cultures and times between men and women. Men are more assertive and women are more nurturing. This probably, we can say certainly, and great scholars do say certain. This is why there is absolute universal patriarchy. What is patriarchy? It's father rule. It's men ruling. It's absolute in all of human history, in every culture, men have led. You say, no, no, there have been matriarchal societies. No, read the small print. They're not matriarchal. They're matrilineal. What does that mean? Well, the name comes down on the woman's side, but it's still the men who lead in every culture ever known to humans. So by the way, that being so, if men and women are the same, how did men pull that off? Men and women are not the same. They have way higher testosterone, which makes them way more aggressive and way less empathetic and way less agreeable. And so in every culture known in human history, the men have been the leaders. This is why in upper-level corporate, I'll mention it again, men have to take sometimes sensitivity training, which means we want to make you more like a woman. And women take assertiveness training, which means we want to help you act more like a man. Why do they do that? Because the men are just so assertive and aggressive, and the women can't compete. Men are more assertive, and women are more nurturing, and it's wonderful. We need both. Each one is equally intensely valuable. We love both. They're beautiful. The planet needs both. There are good reasons for both. So let me pause there. What did we say? We said men are more assertive and women are more nurturing. How might this affect, how might this relate to pastoral ministry and God's gender differentiated commands? I want men to do the preaching. I want men to be the ones who are in leadership. Let me just make a suggestion here. I would submit to you that a flock needs highly assertive shepherds, or very soon, there won't be a flock. And in the case of most churches in human history, eventually, and in some cases very soon, there wasn't a flock. Why? What happened? Nobody was assertive enough to say, over my dead body, you're not bringing that in here. What you'll be left with in the absence of highly assertive shepherds is well-fed wolves, happy wolves, burping wolves who came in and devoured the sheep. The preaching needs to be highly masculine, highly assertive, and the leading needs to be highly masculine, highly assertive, because it's war. So men are assertive, women are nurturing. Are there other differences? Yes, here's another difference. This is one of the high-end differences. This has been found again and again and again. The data is just solid. Men are more interested in things and the systems of those things. Women are more interested in people and the relationships among those people. This is absolutely sound. And again, I want to say we need both. Thank God women are more interested in people and relationships. Couldn't live on the planet if they weren't. We we deeply need that. Thank God men are interested in things and systems. Couldn't live on the planet if they weren't. We need both. Both are equally valuable at different places and different times and in different roles. Now, for this, men are interested in things and systems. Women are interested in people and relationships. I want to read to you from a great book. His title is Human Diversity. It's by Charles Murray. It's about, I don't know, it looks like four or five, yeah, 500 pages. But here we are on um, 
The chapter is a framework for thinking about sex differences, and he writes, More than a century ago, Edward Thorndike, one of the founders of educational psychology, asserted that the greatest cognitive difference between men and women is in the relative strength of the interest in things and their mechanisms, that's stronger in men, and the interest in persons and their feelings, that is stronger in women. In another book, this book right here, here's my copy of it. It used to be a library copy. It's titled The Truth About the Male and Female Brain, The Essential Difference by Simon Baron Cohen. That's a hyphenated last name. And this author quotes from that and says what that book is about is men are systematizers and women are empathizers. Let me tease that out a little more. Men are driven to understand and build systems. Women are driven to understand and build relationships among people. Empathy is required for that. Most men have some empathy, but on women, but on average, women are way more uh, empathetic and better at relationships than men. So interesting. Also in this book by um, Baron Cohen, The Essential Difference, Male and Female Brains, there's a subtitle to a version of it called, And the Truth About Autism, published in 2003. And what they assert in there, this is kind of interesting, is that autism is the extreme of a male brain. But if you want to really understand the male brain, you should just go to autism and then back off a little bit. That's a male brain. Autism is almost exclusively male, by the way. Hmm, men and women are different, aren't they? So is stuttering, by the way. It's almost exclusively male. Um, dyslexia is heavily male, so men and women are different. But autism is the extreme male brain. The regular male brain is tending in that direction compared to a woman's brain. Women are so much more relational than men, and thank God for it. Men are interested in things and systems. Women are interested in people and relationships. Well, how does this help me? Well, this will help you as a husband to understand what's going on with your wife. Why is she thinking that way? Because the relationship and the people are tugging powerfully on her female soul. This will help you if you're a wife to understand your husband. Why is he thinking that way? Because he's not so relational and he's thinking about the cold, steely, perhaps facts of the situation. What about pastors? Aren't relationships important in the church? Shouldn't pastors be highly relational and empathetic? Well, relationships are important, but if you read the pastoral epistles, Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul to Titus. And if you go to Acts chapter 20 and read Paul to the Ephesian elders, it's not about relationships. It's about guarding the flock. It's about standing against fierce wolves. By the way, so here's something interesting, and I ran into it. I think it was yesterday or the day before. I ran into an example of this, and I've seen many other examples. When women think about pastoral ministry, they tend to think of it in terms of how women feel about things, relationships. They assume it's about people. If you're a pastor, your time is spent in people and relationships, comforting and counseling people who are hurting, empathizing. Now, certainly as pastors, you do some of that. And some pastors who have different characteristics than others might do more of that. Uh, but that is not primarily what the pastoral ministry is. In my Twitter feed, yesterday or the day before, a lady, I follow her regularly, she's a sound lady, a good, solid lady, she described her understanding of pastoral ministry this way. Pastoral ministry is about sharing struggles, helping people to deal with depression, delving deep into childhood wounds. Her view of pastoral ministry is, in short, it's therapy. 
but it's not. We're not pastoral therapists. We're pastoral preachers and leaders and teachers. Speaking of therapy, I guess you know that 90% of people who visit a therapist are women, and 90% of the therapists they visit are women. Why is that so if men and women are the same? Because the women are into people and empathy and problems and helping them with their problems and anxiety and depression and worry and fear. What am I saying? Women, on average, will see church differently. They'll see it as a network of relationships and helping with hurts. They will speak to a church differently. If you give them the same text a man just preached from, they will preach from it differently because they have different interests. They will lead the church differently. God in his word says he wants the masculine nature doing the leading and the teaching. Maybe this helps you get it. Church has relationships in it, but the church is a thing. And men are into things. And the thing, the church is a system of things and people. Doctrine, theology, is a thing, and there are systems of that. And men are really interested in things and systems. A thing to be clarified, a thing to be defended. So what's psychology teaching us? Let me review. One, men are more assertive, women are more nurturing. We need both. Be a lot of the difference. Men are more interested in things. Women are more interested in people. Here's a third difference in psychology. Men are highly interested in and are highly agentic. That means they're agents that make things happen. They are highly agentic with things and systems, whereas women are very interested in and highly agentic with people and relationships. Here's what I mean. Let's look at the world. So how many people are on the planet? There's 8 billion people on the planet. That's a lot of people, 8 billion people on the planet. Where did they all come from? How come they're all alive? The answer is pretty much it's due to women. So they were conceived inside a woman. They were gestated inside a woman. They were delivered by a woman. They were kept alive, certainly in the first two years. They're absolutely dependent, vulnerable. They would die without, well, generally, without a woman to care for them. It's a woman who raised them. And even when they're bigger kids and you have a two-income, full-time working family, guess who, and there's absolute data for this, guess who does the yeoman's share of taking care of the young ones? It's the woman. Why? Because she loves it. She's driven to do it. It's oxytocin, and it's, what's the other one? Starts with a P. Can't think of it right now. She's, she's driven to those things. Why are all these humans alive? It's because of a woman. Women are very powerfully fueled, very passionate about taking care of those younger people. Like, don't get between the mama bear and her cubs, right? She's driven for those cubs, and the mother is all over the task of nurturing her children. That's why there are people alive on the planet. By contrast, men are highly agentic with things. Men love to create things and work on the systems of things. Now, I'm going to give you an idea that came from this excellent book. The author is Anthony Esselin, and the title of the book is No Apologies. I'm not going to actually read from it. I'm just going to, I'm showing you the book so you'll know I'm not making this stuff up. And I didn't just Google it and lift a quote from somewhere. I've actually read the books. And from Anthony Esselin's book, No Apologies, now I'm going to launch off something he does with my own verbiage. Let's take a fork. You know, like you eat with a fork. I just did that right-handed, but I'm actually a lefty, but my hand's under the boom, so I did it right-handed, but I'm a lefty. So you eat with a fork. 
Um, where did that fort come from? Did you ever stop to consider that? Well, somebody had to make huge machines, had to design, conceive of, implement, and make and manufacture huge machines that can dig huge holes, they call them quarries, in the earth. They call them mines in the earth. That's men who did that. Somebody has to work in those quarries and work in those mines. That's men who do that. Somebody has to drive the trucks, those huge machines that haul the stuff out of the quarries. That's almost all men who do that. Somebody has to use the machines that work with that stuff. Somebody has to operate the trains and the things that load it onto the trains. Somebody has to put it on the ships. It's all men. Somebody has to run the ships, design the ships, fuel the ships. The fuel for the ships came out of the earth, deep in the earth. It's all men who are getting that fuel out of the earth and who figured out how to do it and who work all the machinery to do it. Everything that got you that fork, pretty much, except maybe the people working in the store where they sold the fork, it's all men. Men are highly agentic with things. You could extend this to pretty much everything you see. Maybe not flowers. You know, there are exceptions. Pretty much everything you see. So every person you see is there because of women. And pretty much everything, everything you see, every road you drive on, every building you go into, every air conditioning you enjoy, all the electricity coming into your home that makes the lights go on, it's men. So... Interesting, isn't it? Men and women are different, equally valuable. Do we need people alive on the planet? Yes, thank you, women. Do we need stuff on the planet? Yes, thank you, men. But the world of systems and things is dramatically dominated by men, and the world of people and relationships is dramatically dominated by women. Why are we going into this? This will help you to understand the opposite sex. It will help you to understand your marriage. Why doesn't my husband do more of the nurturing? Why does he leave so much of this to me? Because you are driven to it, passionate about it. You love it. You are fueled for it by powerful chemicals. Progesterone, that's the one that starts with a P, and oxytocin. He is not. He is fueled. He is driven to do things, to develop systems with things. Let me tell you a funny story. As I was leaving the house to come over here today, my wife told me she had been babysitting for a family in our church. They have three little boys. I think she was keeping two of those boys. And um, the, the mother of the house told my wife that, yeah, here's one of the latest antics of the boys. They were upstairs in their bedroom. They took These are little guys. They took the screen out of their window, and they were throwing things from their room out the window, probably laughing and giggling and loving it. And I didn't tell the mother this. I saw her this morning, but my thought was, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I dig that those guys were doing that. On the other hand, yes, you can't have them doing that because it'll be a mess every day. They'll keep doing it for weeks. So, yeah, you have to tell them no, and you have to make no stick. So I get that. But, you know, there's something in me that's like, cool. I'll go throw things out the window, too. It sounds like fun. Guys like that. Not so much girls. How does this affect church leadership? Again, the church of Jesus Christ is a thing. It is a system of interacting things. Wolves are things, false doctrines are things, and God appoints men to deal with the things. Here's another way that men and women are different. This is way number four. Men and women do friendships in entirely different ways. In other words, the friendships that men have are of one kind, and the friendships that women have, well, they're a very different animal. They're a very different kind. Have you ever noticed that? Did you know that? Well, what are the differences? Psychologists tell us this is certain. Male friendships are mostly transactional. Now, again, this is a bell curve. There's a range. You'll find a man who's less masculine than some other men, and his relationships might be less transactional. But he's still a man. 
There is shared activity in men's friendships. Let's get something done. It's not very intimate. It's not about feelings. It's not about support. It's about let's hunt together. Let's work together. Let's play our sport together. Let's talk about work together. Let's solve a problem with our work together. That's what guys do when they hang out. What about female friendships? They are highly, deeply relational and bless the Lord for it. It's about intimacy. It's about emotional connection. It's about support. It's about sharing thoughts and feelings. It's about secrets. It's driven by oxytocin and perhaps progesterone. Men and women friendships are very different. I'll just leave that one and go on. So what have we seen so far? Men are more assertive, women more nurturing. Men are more interested in things, women more in people. Men are highly agentic with things, women highly agentic with people. Thank God for that. And male and female friendships differ. Here's another way that men and women differ. And this one I'm going to draw from the big five, that psychometric personality profile test that I mentioned earlier, rates you on five spectrums. Women score higher than men, this is absolutely certain, on the spectrum called neuroticism. Now, what is neuroticism? If you're highly neurotic, it means you have more of what psychologists call negative emotions. So you're going to struggle with more depression, more anxiety, more fear, more worry. Um, You're going to struggle with um, more anger, more negative emotions, and men score lower on that, and women score higher in that. And this is one of the major firm differences between men and women. Well, what does that mean? Well, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, has a great story. I read this thing probably 45 years ago, but it's so striking, I remember it. And uh, rather than putting it in my own words, let me just read you his words. The short story is going to be, if your dog bites the neighbor's child, or if your child bites the neighbor's dog, and you have to go next door and talk to them about it, which one would you rather talk to, the husband or the wife? So this is out of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and let me read it to you. Quote, the relations of the family to the outer world, what might be called foreign policy, must depend, in the last resort, upon the man, because he always ought to be, and usually is, much more just to the outsiders. A woman is primarily, I'll add fiercely, a woman is primarily fighting for her children and her husband against the rest of the world. Naturally, almost, no, it is naturally, in a sense, rightly, their claims, the claims of her kids, the claims of her husband, override the claims of the world, all other claims. She is the special trustee of their interests. Now, Lewis goes on. He, by contrast, he has the last word in order to protect other people from the intense family patriotism of the wife. Then he goes on, if anyone doubts this, let me ask a simple question. If your dog has bitten the child next door, or if your child has hurt the dog next door, which would you sooner have to deal with, the master of the house or the mistress? I think we all know the answer. If I go talk to her, I might be walking into a buzzsaw. That's her child. My dog bit her child. She is livid. If I go talk to him, he might be like, that's okay. They're not really hurt. What kind of dog you got? I like dogs. Would you show me your dog? It's going to go very differently. What's that illustrate? Men have the ability to quiet their emotions 
when there are difficulties in relationships, or they don't even have the negative emotions, the anger, the anxiety to deal with. Women score higher in neuroticism. Let me go on to another difference between men and women. Now, I do have a few more. Uh, women empathize, men systemize. So that's, that's the uh, basis of one of the books I already showed you. Now, empathy is vital for tender understanding. Empathy is vital for understanding other people. And women are way better than men at empathy, at nurturing. But empathy is not so vital and is not so healthy for leading in difficult, dicey, complex situations. Empathy, they write, is easily exploited. To bring this right up to speed and up to our day, transgenderism is largely facilitated by overly empathetic and sometimes highly neurotic mothers. Yeah, it's not the dad saying, go ahead and cut off my kids' parts. It's the mother. Again, by overly empathetic and sometimes highly neurotic mothers. Another one wrote, feminine virtues like empathy are wonderful, but they need to function in concert with masculine leadership. Again, in Simon Baron Cohen's book, The Essential Difference, uh, The Truth About the Male and Female Brain, that's where those things came from. Now, what is empathy? Women are better at empathy. What, are, what is empathy? If you have empathy, you can feel the emotions. You feel, you vibrate, you resonate with the emotions of the other person. As opposed to, let's take the male brain in its extreme form, autism, they don't feel anybody else's vibrations. They don't feel anybody else's emotions. Back off of that a little. Now you have the average man compared to a woman. They don't vibe with other people. They don't feel the emotions. They're not triggered by them. They don't resonate with them. What do men do instead of empathizing? They systematize. They are driven to create systems. So one of our deacons in this church, and I've known him a long time now. He's been a deacon here a long time. His name is Mark. And man, does he ever think in systems. Like, I was actually at a wedding reception once with him, and I saw him standing in the lobby, looking around the building at the ceiling, like studying the ceiling. That was his engineering brain. He wasn't looking at people. His wife's probably noticing people, and a lot of women are so, so empathetic that they can go into a restaurant, and in like 10 minutes, they already know how each marriage at the other tables is doing. They could read that. The man hasn't even noticed there are marriages at the other table or how they're doing. He knows nothing about it. But he has an engineering brain. He's studying the building and thinking about, if bad things happen, where are we going to run? Men and women are made differently. So a leader needs to be a good systematizer. A leader be able to, needs to be able to see the group and its activities as a system. A good leader must have lower empathy so they will spend less time worrying about how the people in the system will feel when we make decision X. The better the empathy, the worse at systems. The better at systems, the worse at empathy. Now, why does God want men to be pastors to lead and manage the church, the system? And they will face many unhappy people. And if they're too high in empathy and agreeableness, it will destroy them. Trust me, somebody is always unhappy with you when you're a pastor. Here's another difference between men and women. Women score higher in agreeableness. I already referred to this, but they do men less. What, what is agreeableness? Agreeableness means I value the relationship so much that I will tend to agree with things that maybe I don't even agree with. 
and men can score higher or lower in that. Women can score higher and lower or lower in that. But on average, this is one of the assured uh, findings, women are way more agreeable than men. Why does God want men in leadership in the church and leadership in the home? Maybe because they're not going to be so agreeable. Maybe Eve was agreeable with the serpent in the garden. Here's another difference between men and women, leaving the big five, coming back to general findings. Men and women, you, you heard of extroversion, right? You know what that is. Extroversion talks about your relationship to the outside world. Introversion describes your relationship to your inside world. Extroverts live out there. Introverts live in here. And men and women manifest their extroversion. Here's a woman who scores extroverted. Here's a man who scores extroverted. They manifest those very differently. If you Go out into the facets level. You go beyond, he's an extrovert, she's an extrovert. You go out to their facets level, the 10 facets. One of the facets is primarily male, and the other facet is primarily female. So there's a way that males are extroverted, and it's different from the way females are extroverted. How are males extroverted? Male extroversion is primarily manifested in social dominance and assertiveness. Whereas an extroverted woman is, quote, inspired to socialize, to discuss personal problems, to go out there, to share. Men hate that generally, sharing. Uh, an extroverted woman is inspired to share feelings and ideas. She has relational enthusiasm. She is relationally thrilled. She loves to talk. Men understand this about your wife. It's not just your wife. This is what God put into women, and it's wonderful. It's beautiful. The planet needs it. We value it. But why then would church would the church need men to be pastors? Because the men need to manifest their extroversion in terms of social dominance and assertiveness. When I uh, when our church joined a group called Acts Twenty Nine. Back in those days, anyway, you had to take a test to be admitted as an Acts Twenty Nine pastor. The test is called the DISC test. D-I-S-C, and it tests you for your social dominance, and you land in one of four quadrants. For them to back you as a church planter, you had to, you had to score rather heavily socially dominant. Why? Because they said if you're not, the people will just run over you, and they'll drag you wherever they want. You won't be able to stand against it. Men and women differ. Here's another really interesting differ, difference, and we're coming down home stretch. Hang in there with me, please. Did you know that men and women's speech patterns differ? They really do. Men and women speak differently. This is proven again and again and again. Data's there and it's firm. Men speak in a way that is more assertive, and women speak in a way that is more relational. Now I'm going to turn to this excellent book by Harvey Mansfield called, well, interesting, Mansfield wrote the book called Manliness. Now just to let you know, He's a Harvard guy, been a Harvard professor forever, tenured. He's up in age now. And uh, Yale Press thought it was so good. It's Yale who published this. So this isn't little, some little mom and pop thing in their own publishing house in their basement. This is Yale publishing Harvey Mansfield from Harvard. And they point, he points out in this book how the speech patterns of men and women differ. How do I work around my boom when I'm doing this? All right, I have to figure that out better. So... He writes on, I'm supposed to be on page 29, and I'm on 31. Let's go to 29. He writes, let's take note of the sex difference over assertiveness. There are language differences in assertiveness that the linguist Robin Lakoff 
brought to light in her influential book, Language and Woman's Place, and that the sociolinguist Deborah, Deborah Tannum described in her best-selling, you, don't just, you Just Don't Understand. Here we go. Lakoff pointed out certain distinctive features of women's speech. Women use a more specialized vocabulary for female tasks, such as cooking. They use milder expletives than do men. They use, they employ, they use more empty adjectives like cute than men do. They attach tag questions at the end of assertions like, don't you agree? They use a wider range of pitch and intonation as if avoiding a flat, blunt statement. They employ super polite forms as if, such as, I wonder if you would mind. They sort of hedge their assertions. Their grammar is more correct than men's, and, and their grammar avoids vulgar or coarse words. And get this last one in his list. And they do not tell jokes. That's interesting. What do they mean by that? Women do tell jokes, but most of their jokes are self-deprecating jokes that don't threaten the relationship, that couldn't possibly upset anybody else. Most of men's jokes, by comparison, are joking at the cost of the other guy, making fun of the other guy. Like, for example, one of our sons just bought a very used Toyota 4Runner. It's a four-wheel drive. And I have a truck. It's a four-wheel drive. It's a Ford. And now the jokes are flying. Like, no sooner than he bought it, I said, well, look, don't worry, son. If you get that thing stuck, I can come and pull you out. That's men's jokes. Women don't joke that way. Not much anyway. It's too dangerous for the relationship that they want to nurture and maintain. Again, there's more on this page. Men and women live for contrasting ways of life. Men want independence. Women want intimacy. When men speak, they report what they know or believe as if lecturing in public to an audience. By contrast, when women speak, they seek rapport with their listeners so as to connect with them. These are firm foundings. Just a little bit more, a few short bits from the next page. When men say something, they say it in a way that's like, take it or leave it. Men's speech is more assertive than women's. The two sexes misunderstand, misinterpret each other. The same action, say a polite request that looks like subservience to a man, looks like sensitivity to a woman. So the woman wants intimacy, and the man wants something more like domination. That's from Mansfield's Manliness. From another book, I won't even show you this one to give you the title. Men have trouble. This is interesting. There are possibly many reasons why God says, I want the men to do the preaching. This might be one of them. Might. It is proven that on average, men have trouble following a woman's multi-tracked speaking structure. Women's brains are complex, man. Like I, I said in the part one of this same podcast, the same topic, the woman can be doing like nine different things, including three different conversations at once, and she effortlessly tracks with it all. Men can't do that. So when men speak, I mean, when, women, when men speak, it's simple, blunt for the most part, straightforward, here are the facts, ABC. When women speak, it tends to be very multi-tracked. By, the, by, contra by contrast, women have no trouble following a man. It's easy. So that may be one reason why God says, I want the men to do the preaching. Why? So masculine men, men over on that range, will come. They won't like, they won't enjoy, they won't respect, they won't understand 
the preaching of a woman. Also, a man's speech is more solution-oriented. A woman's speech is more relational-oriented. We know this. A woman uses words to build relationships. Put that woman in a pulpit, exegeting a passage. What's she going to do? It's going to be different than the way a word, a man would, would exegete that passage. Also, women tend to be indirect, especially if there's going to be a confrontation. They avoid aggression, confrontation, or discord unless they don't like you, and then it's indirect but bad. Their speech includes lots of kind of, sort of, a bit, and men use very direct speech. They don't do the kind ofs. They speak with shorter sentences. They're more blunt. They say, you. They're information and solution-oriented. Their speech is peppered with facts. Their qualifiers are never, none, and absolutely. So, what does this mean for the church? Many men, honestly, don't be hurt by this, ladies. Many men won't like the preaching of women. But most women will like the preaching of men. Actually, in my experience, some women push back at somewhat masculine preaching. But anyway, that's for another time. So what's the point I've been making? We see in the Bible and we see in psychology, at least grant me this, men and women are very different by nature. We are made differently by God. We are made for different roles. The man is made for the world out there, conquest for the sake of the family. The woman is made for the world in here, nurturing, training, keeping people alive, caring, empathizing, sympathizing. This perhaps, is why God placed the men over the family and made them for that position as they are. This is why perhaps God made men and placed them over the church, making them as they are, and why he put women in the roles they are in. Now, one last thing here. Could be tons more on this. Man, did I struggle to weed stuff out and uh, pare it down to this little. But anyway, why must pastors be men? Simple answer, because it's a fight because it's war, because the job is not mainly nurturing, counseling, therapy, hurting people, false. I'm going to read to you some phrases from the pastoral epistles. This is where Paul tells all pastors what the job is and how to do it. I want you to note the verbs. There are many verbs in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I want to read the verbs for you. They're not nurturing verbs. They're aggressive, assertive, protecting from wolves, flat no hedging verbs. 1 Timothy 1.3, charge. The word is actually command. Every time I say charge from the ESV, it's actually just the Greek word for command. Charge certain men not to. 1 Timothy 1.5, charge. 1 Timothy 1.18, charge. Harder for women to do. They're more agreeable. It's more difficult to command. They need assertiveness training in corporate 1 Timothy 1.18, wage the good warfare. It's war. It's not therapy. It's war. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things and let no one despise your youth. 1 Timothy 5.20, rebuke those people in the presence of all. 1 Timothy 6.2, teach and urge these things. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.17, charge them, which is command them. 1 Timothy 6.20, guard the deposit. Those I submit to you are all masculine endeavors. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the good deposit. 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier. 2.14, charge them before God. 4.1 and following, I charge you in the presence of God. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and authority. 2 Timothy 4.5, endure suffering. 
few more from Titus. Titus 1, 10 and 11, there are many talkers. They must be silenced. It's going to be harder for a woman to do than a man. 1 Timothy 1, 13, rebuke them sharply. You can't be highly empathetic and do that. You won't. 1 Timothy 3.10, a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Cut it off. Ostracize him. Easy for the man with the cold, steely logic to do. Harder for the woman with the heart, the empathy, the sympathy to do. I'm going to say this. I hope I don't make anybody mad. But a church led by women will be a very different church than a church led by men. And sermons preached by women will, on average, generally be very different sermons than sermons preached by men. And we need men to come. Because if you get the men, you get the women. And if you get the women, you get the children. By contrast, if you get the children, you don't get either parent. If you get the mother, you might get some of the children, but you don't get the man. We need to get the man. There's data on that that's absolutely firm. So what am I saying? Here we are at the bottom line. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Men and women are different. Men need to lead the church. Men need to be the teachers where adult males are present. Men need to leave the home, but man, do we love and value and respect and esteem women. We need women just as badly as we need men. They're different, but both fearfully and wonderfully made. So there it is. I hope this has helped you to understand the opposite sex, your husband, your wife. Hope you've understood better that men are needed. If you've been thinking, yeah, maybe we don't really need men. And I hope you understand, as I just said, men and women are both fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. So, thanks for listening. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me on Grounded. Let me remind you, Grounded comes out twice a week. You can find it on all the major platforms. Thanks. 